Okay, so, yeah, welcome to everyone. Um, let me, let me uh, open us in prayer and then we can start. Well, Father, thank you for this time we can spend together studying your word. We do ask that you would, uh, yeah, just give us much understanding, help us to see Christ, help us to learn from, from Israel and from David. And we ask that in everything you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first Samuel. So Remember last week we did uh, Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and it was the period of the Judges. So Israel has uh, come out of Egypt through the wilderness under Joshua. They entered the promised land, but there were still pockets of resistance. There was still, they, didn't, they didn't completely conquer all the land, and they're going to have difficulties throughout their history with the other nations, especially the Philistines, with David. Then there's this period of several hundred years uh, when the judges are ruling, and the, the cool word that was used was warlords. So they were not judges in the traditional sense, wearing a wig with a hammer, but they were deliverers that God would raise up. Israel would sin. We saw that cycle. They would sin. God would raise up an enemy nation to conquer them. They would repent and cry out for salvation. God would raise up a deliverer who would defeat the enemies. Then there would be peace for a while, and then, uh, then they would forget the Lord again. And so a very, very tragic uh, cycle that we should learn from. Samuel, then, is the transition from these warlords to the monarchy, to kings. Okay, so it's this transitional period. And so it is narrative, it is uh, story, very, very interesting. Many of our most well-known accounts are found in First in and Second Samuel, David and Goliath, and the story of Samuel and Saul and Eli and uh, David's sins as well. So it's, it's, it's well worth reading if you're able to. So let's start with, with chapter 1. Uh, the birth of, of Samuel. Um, let, let me just say, Samuel dies in book one, so it's, it wasn't put together by him. Samuel's probably not the best name. It's really more to do with David. Uh, we don't know who put these books together. We're not told or when they were finally... Um, everything was put, put together. Uh, we don't know that, but that's not important. If the Holy Spirit wanted us to know it, we would know it. Okay, so we have the birth of Samuel, and we are introduced to uh, this man called Elkanah, and his he has two wives, verse 2. The one is Hannah and Penanai, and Penanai has children, but Hannah is barren. And so she, in, in this uh, situation, is symbolic of Israel at this time. They are, are barren. They are not producing fruit to the Lord. Um, they, they used to go to Shiloh. So that's where, where the, the, the place of worship was. It was Shiloh. It was not yet Jerusalem. David is the one who we'll see establishes all of that. So they go to Shiloh. And Eli is the, the priest. And his sons Hophni and Phinehas are also priests with him. And uh, Elkanah goes to offer sacrifices. And he, he gives portions to his wife, Penanai, but he gives a double portion to Hannah because he loved her and also because he, he's concerned about her because she's, she's barren. Remember in that uh, ancient Near Eastern culture and in many traditional cultures, that, that is a very shameful thing. Okay? Uh, not a nice thing, obviously, for any family that wants to have children, but... 
very much a shameful thing, a sign of God's disfavor. In, it was seen like that in the ancient world. And so throughout the scriptures, you'll see that God draws especially close to, uh, to women who are barren. Remember, we've seen already with, with Sarah. Um, and here we're going to see again with, uh, with, with Hannah. So uh, her, her, uh, the other wife is called the rival, verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So, not a nice situation. Polygamy is never portrayed as a positive in, in the scriptures. Uh, we will see that God allows it. So, it's not, it's not um, uh, sin with respect to certain, certain times in history and with certain understanding. It would certainly be a sin for someone who knows God's plan, you know, to say, oh, actually, I'm going to take a second wife or something like that. That would be sinful now, but... Um, at this time, it was not sin, but it was never first prize. Okay, it was always leads to problems. Uh, obviously, okay. Okay, so uh, they're in Shiloh, and uh, she goes to to pray. She cries out to the Lord. She's an example of a godly woman. In this terrible situation, she cries out to the Lord. She prays. She's deeply distressed, verse 10, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What is that vow called? Nazarite. Nazarite. Vow of the Nazarite. Like Samson. So... Uh, remember that we've there's judges, then there's Ruth. If you if you skip Ruth, because Ruth is sort of a distinct story, also set during the time of the judges, but we had the book of Judges sort of ending with Samson, the last sort of judge that we told about. Then we have all those horrible stories, but we end with Samson, and his birth is very similar. Remember that there's Manoah and his wife, and the Lord visits visits them and. So again, it's a sort of supernatural birth. Uh, Samson is also a Nazarite. But so we, we, we end Judges with, with this situation. We begin Samuel with a very similar situation, but there are important differences. Samuel is a lot more godly than Samson. Hannah is more godly than Manoah's wife. Um, and so Samuel is, is going to going to move us out of Judges into the monarchy and, and, and up to David. So sort of the high point, and then we're also going to unfortunately see a bit of a crash with David. Okay, so she goes and she prays, uh, and she's crying out to the Lord, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord Eli, remember Eli is the, the priest, He's, he observes her mouth, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. Now, it shows the spiritual condition of Eli that he can't tell the difference between someone who's drunk and someone who's praying. Obviously, fervent prayer and crying out to the Lord was not a common thing in Israel. That it's so foreign to him, he thinks, Well, this lady must be drunk. And we'll see that Eli is very spiritually dull. Um, he can't see properly. And one of the things with narratives, so this is important, as you remember, we've spoken about the genre. You want to identify what genre you are reading so that you can adjust. Uh, so we read poetry differently to the way we read uh, law or, or teaching, didactic literature, like the, um, the epistles have sections where they're just telling us to do certain things. Uh, when you read narrative or story, the narrators uh, are very, very rarely will actually intrude and say this was a bad thing or this was a good thing or anything like that. They just tell us the story. And so we have to read in quite a sophisticated way to try and figure out what's going on, whether this is bad or good, what is the lesson that we are being taught here. So there are certain things that you want to look for. You want to look for repetition. Um, 
So if a word is repeated, then that's important. Okay. Uh, one of the other things that they, they will do is what is called a sympathetic background. So maybe you remember this from school. Sympathetic background. And so uh, you, we, we are very familiar with this, even if you don't, you've never heard of that, you're not familiar with the concept, you are familiar with it if you watch movies, okay? Because in movies, um, they will portray something as bad by it's dark, okay, or it's scary, or they use... They thunder, use thunder and lightning. Thunder and lightning. They use nature, they use... Uh, events in the background to evoke certain emotions okay so uh, the scriptures do that as well so one of the things can be um, you know when Judas betrays the Lord Jesus and it says and he went out and it was night okay. now it's not just oh that's interesting it was it was evening already it's giving us a it's telling us this is really where Judas is spiritually he's in darkness um, and so there's things like that where nature and then even the physical aspect. So blindness, physical blindness is often a picture of spiritual blindness in the Old Testament. Now, that's not a law or something that one applies. It's uh, or if someone can't hear, then it's a sign of, um, again, spiritual, uh, a spiritual problem. These are, these are symbolic. Remember, we've spoken about that. The Old Testament is very physical and uses a lot of symbolism that are teaching us spiritual realities. And so what we're going to see with Eli is that he can't see very well. And uh, he's also very overweight. Okay? He's very overweight. And the scripture emphasizes that. And I'll tell you why just now. Okay, so, But he says to her, look... Um, uh, the the Lord will hear your prayer and it, it actually happens. And she falls pregnant and she gives birth to Samuel and after he's weaned, she takes him back. Remember she said, oh, Lord, I will, I will give him to you. Okay. And so she brings Samuel back and Samuel comes back into, to serve in, uh, to serve the Lord. Uh, she responds with this wonderful prayer. So she, in chapter two, very similar to Mary's Magnificat. Remember in, in Luke, after she's told that she's going to bear the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this, this song of Mary. And Hannah's prayer is very similar. And it is all about how God exalts the lowly and brings down the, the proud. Okay? God's way is different to ours. God takes the things which are not and makes them to be, and takes the things which are, and makes them nothing. Paul talks about that, the weak and the foolish God uses. God's economy, God's way of working is contrary to, to the world. Okay, so, um, uh, okay. Um, chapter 2 from verse 12, we see Eli's worthless sons. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They did not acknowledge the Lord. They were stealing from the Lord. They were eating the fat. Remember, the fat always belonged to the, to the Lord. Okay, They were stealing the fat from the meat offerings. Um, and Eli is not doing anything about it. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that he, his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the woman who was serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So again, he's hearing, he's not seeing, even though he's there, but you can see that they are, they're sort of archetypal false, false teachers, false prophets, false priests. And so what you see throughout the scriptures is um, religious leaders, the false ones are those who um, chase after money and are sexually immoral. So throughout the scriptures, you will see this theme. And that's why what goes on in the church shouldn't shock us when we see that kind of thing happening. It's just revealing that that's a false. These are false teachers. They chase after money. They take advantage of women. So it's, it's, but it's all the way through the scriptures. You find this. The Pharisees did the same thing. Okay. Um, 
So the, his sons are doing this. He hears about it. Um, and he's, he, he says, why are you doing this? And they don't listen to him. Verse 25, at the, at the second part, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So they are responsible. They are guilty for their own sin, but also behind that you see God's sovereignty. Um, then the contrast with with Samuel, the next verse, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man, which is what we've, we read about Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 2, the Lord Jesus grew in, in favor and stature with God and man. Uh, very interesting. We'll, we'll look at that when we get to the Gospels about the humanity of Jesus. Okay, so then it uh, carries on, um, and in in Hebrew, the word for for glory is kavod. It means weighty. Okay, and the author now puts a play on the weight of Eli and the weight that belongs to the Lord. How Eli is also obviously eating all the best food um, and he's gaining weight, glory for himself, but not giving weight or glory to the Lord. So that's the Hebrew idea of glory. When you read glory, it means weightiness. Okay, It's quite a good idea. It's, it, there is substance, there is weight. It, it's like there's an experience that leaves you awestruck, you know, and you feel drained and... Uh, like you've just finished gym, okay? Like there's no strength in your legs. <laughs> uh, that's the idea with God. Our God is an awesome God, a glorious God, a weighty God. But now there is this this play. So the the word honor, you can see there in verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons? You put weight upon your sons above me. By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering. Then carries on. Uh, uh, verse 30, the, the last part. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, who make me weighty, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. They will be like nothing. Okay. Remember Psalm 1 says that the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff. There is no substance to the wicked. Okay. Um, very interesting, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, portrays people in hell like that, that they have no substance. They're, they're virtually, you can see straight through them. There is nothing solid to them. And, and that is what the wicked are like. There is, it's not like, oh, they have great personality and character. They are, they are nothing outside of God. It is God that gives us substance and meaning and um, weight, honor. Okay, so um, chapter 3, verse 2, at that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his place. This is when uh, the Lord calls Samuel. Remember the story, Samuel, he's a young boy, he's sleeping, but he hears a voice, he thinks it's Eli, he runs to him, he says, Eli, were you talking to me? He said, no, I wasn't, and back and forth, and eventually... He says, Eli realizes it's probably the Lord. Just say, speak, your servant hears. And verse 11, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's not tingle in a sort of a, it's oh, a nice feeling. The idea is there if someone comes and slaps you on your the side of your head. Uh, but it's, you know, it's like everyone's ear is going to be on fire because God is going to do something. What he's going to do is remove the house of Eli. He's going to um, also judge Israel. Um, now, Sam, Samuel, rightly, well, understandably, as a young man, is scared to tell Eli what's going to happen, because, uh, verse 12, On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering 
forever. So you can imagine that Samuel is very scared to, to tell Eli this. But Eli says to him, tell me everything. Don't withhold it from me. And so he tells him. And he responds here in a wonderful way. Uh, verse 18. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. we will see that there is a contrast between him and Saul because Saul, when the kingdom is taken from Saul, how does he respond? He tries to kill David. He tries to oppose God's will. He doesn't say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems right and step and he back. Really a yeah, a medium. Yeah, he, he, it's very bad. Um, so the, the, I think there's some something positive happens here, and um, okay. So the then they're, they're at war with the Philistines. They lose the battle, and they think what we need is the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle. And really, what's happened is they become superstitious. They don't seek the Lord. They don't cry out to God and repent and say, Lord, what should we do? They just say, Hey, let's get our lucky charm. Let's go into battle. And of course, Christians, we can be like that. We're all prone to superstition. Uh, you know that um, I didn't do my devotion today. I'm going to have a bad day. Everything's going to go wrong. Okay, As though our devotion sort of manipulates God to give us stuff. I'm not, it's good to have devotions, obviously. But some days it's not going to happen. You know, you oversleep. Things the other day, uh, we were... We were uh, trying to get the car ready and trying to replace the windscreen. We eventually get it done. Then the car won't start. Try and get the bus around to jumpstart it, but it's too far away and we can't turn the bus around. And then there's somebody else's car there and the battery's too small. And you're just trying everything and nothing's working and you get those days. Um, Doesn't devotion help you strengthen your mind and yourself, put you in the right space? It's got nothing to do with making your day right. In the right space. No, no, devotion's a fantastic yeah. thing and a good thing, so but as better. Christians, we tend to think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I didn't do that, yeah. I got well, a puncture because did, I didn't. Because you reacted wrong. <laughs> maybe if you did your devotion, you wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not superstition. That's not a superstitious thing. So, so, but we get yeah. like that, you know, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if, if um, I, I, people I'm get like that, my. my my, uh, I don't have my special cross necklace or, you know, we can, all sorts of things. Um, we can become mystical. Israel has become like that. Instead of trusting God, their, their confidence is in this, the Ark of the, the Covenant. And it, they get defeated and the Ark is taken. And uh, when the news comes back, now look at verse 13 of chapter 4. When he arrived... The, man, the messenger comes back with the news. Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. Okay. So now he's watching, which seems like his eyesight might have improved a little. Um, and that may well be because he had, he had submitted to the Lord in this, but he's still going to die. Uh, his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. So it's not 100% obviously. And the man said to Eli, I am here. How did it go? And they tell him the story. Verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. Okay, so there's that word again. Um, he, he had been stealing glory from God. Then his daughter-in-law is giving birth at this time. And um, she hears the news that the ark of God is captured because they, they realize if God has allowed this, he has forsaken his people. Okay. This is God has left us. And then she hears that her father-in-law and her husband are dead because the sons were killed as well. And the pains came upon her. Then they said, don't be afraid you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Verse 21. And she named the child 
Ichabod or Ikavod. Remember, Kavod is glory. Saying the glory has departed from Israel because the Ark of the Lord had been captured. So Ikavod is glory. That's the word you said. No, no, Kavod. Ikavod. It's the opposite. The glory is gone. Kavod or Kabod. Kavod is glory and Ikavod is... Glory is gone. Yeah. And, and then she dies. And that's... You see, and then she dies. And the child... The, the, um, she names the kid Ikavod and dies. Yes. So the... About the see that verse 20? About, about the time of her death. So it's... Can you see it's just... It's physical things happening. Giving birth, dying. But it's painting a picture of the spiritual condition of Israel using imagery of um, bad eyesight, overweight, death. Um, it's it's saying this is this is the spiritual condition of Israel. Okay, it's not good. Then the Philistines have the ark, and it's not that God ceases to be God. Okay, that's what we now see. It's quite humorous the story now because they think, oh yes, we've got. We've got their God, because remember they're idolaters. They think, oh, we've got their little, their God. We're going to put him in our God's temple. And uh, they come through in the morning and their big statue to Dagon has collapsed, fallen on his face before. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a small box. It's nothing impressive, humanly. It's, it's really sort of... It's 1.2 by yeah. uh, 800 centimeters. It's... it's it's big enough you need a few people to carry it. Yeah. So, I mean, you're thinking, oh, what a little God. We have a great statue. And then they come in the morning and that statue's fallen face first in front of this little box. Then it's humorous because it says, then they put Dagon back up. Okay. <laughs> which, which shows the foolishness of idolatry. They put him back up. The next day he's fallen and his head is broken and his hands, which is what... Uh, in the ancient world, ancient Near Eastern world, what they would do to their enemies, and especially enemy kings, it was a way of, of humiliating them and obviously removing their power. Okay, you would cut off their hands and their, and their head. And so God is doing that to their God. Um, and so then they realize... And then a plague comes upon them, a plague of... Uh, like a bubonic plague. It's hemorrhoids and rats. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, they say tumors... They say, they say tumors, but it's hemorrhoids. Um, so, so again, symbolic of idolatry with its filth and its, its, its ugliness. Okay, so um, they then say, "Well, okay, we need to make things right." Instead of repenting and saying, "This is the true and living God," let's go and serve Him. They continue in their satanic blindness, but they say, "Let's just, we just need to get rid of this box," and they make. Restitution. They send. They make golden uh, hemorrhoids and golden rats, as and they put it on the on the cart, and the cart goes back to Israel. And the one city is really excited because they get it back. I think it's um, Beth Shemesh, and they 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 uh, they don't obey God. They look inside it. The ark. They open it up, and God kills seventy men. And so they say, "We don't want the presence of God." And the presence of God goes to Kiriath Jerem, and God starts to bless Kiriath Jerem. Okay, but now Samuel is the one who begins to judge Israel. God has ta- removed Eli and his household, and Samuel now starts to take over. And Samuel is is a godly man. Unfortunately, Samuel also his sons are not not godly. Um, but but he is a godly man. Okay. Um, doesn't he do the same thing as Eli? He doesn't deal with his son's sin? Yeah, and we actually, that's a theme throughout. David does the same thing as well. Um, the, the, they then go and fight the Philistines now that they've got, now that Samuel's in charge. And again, Samuel calls them to prayer. And they go and fight. And this time the Lord fights for them. Look at chapter 7 verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them 
into confusion and they were routed before Israel. Okay, and so this is an important theme throughout. The Lord fights. Okay, the Lord is the one who gives victory. Uh, we saw that with the judges as well, with Gideon. Oh, we see that with David. David, David acknowledges that. Um, and that's, you know, something we all need to... That's what faith is, eh? to trust God in every situation. Now, that doesn't mean there, there was a movement in church history in the last sort of hundred years that called the Keswick Movement, and their famous song was Let Go and Let God. Let Go and Let God. That's bad theology. That's not what we're called to. It's not passivity. It's not just, I'll just lie in my bed and wait till I'm holy. You know, uh, but it's what Proverbs says, prepare the horse for battle but victory belongs to the Lord. Okay. We do everything in our power. Okay. Peter says, make every effort, but ultimately trusting God to undertake in every situation. So we work hard, but we trust God wills, is the one who will provide our needs. You prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you, you do what you need to do, but always you trusting that God will, will undertake. Um, that he will, he will, he will. We we fight sin, but we know that unless he gives us the victory, we'll never, we'll never overcome it. So we, but but we can't say, oh, I'll just wait till God gives me the victory. That's that's a, that's not trusting God. So this this idea to remember it will keep us from anxiety because why are we anxious? We we're not trusting God. We're not believing that victory belongs to God. Um, so it's a, this is an important. Very critical theme. Okay, unfortunately, chapter 8, Israel demands a king. And um, they, um, you can see that. Chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, the name of Israel, etc. They were judges in Beersheba. That's in the, in the south. So there was a common saying from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is up in top south of uh, uh, north, and then Beersheba is, is towards the bottom. So they're in Beersheba. Verse two, 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations, okay. never a good thing <laughs> when you know, like the world. When the when God's people say we want to be like the world, that's what they're doing. But the thing displeased Samuel. Um, but the Lord says to him, verse seven. The Lord said to Samuel, "Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them." according to all the deeds that I've done, etc. So God talks about how he's delivered them and saved them, but they're not honoring him. So then Samuel comes and tells them, like, hey, you want a king, you know what it's going to be like. Verse 11, these will be the ways where the king will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and uh, commanders of fifties and some to play. He's going to take men. He's going to take your sons. To fight in his armies, to look after his fields. That's what's going to happen. He will take your daughters, verse 13, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. And uh, Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants and your donkeys. He will, verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in the day that you cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may, may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And this is a, another key theme. You see, Israel was never to have a professional army. Okay. The, the idea was always you trust God. You live your life. If you are attacked... The men would go up, fighting age men would go up, be called up to go and fight. And they were not professionals. They, they certainly would, you know, have practiced with sword and, and bows and arrows and that, but they were not full-time soldiers. Now, if you're coming up against a professional army, you're going to have to trust God. Do you see that? 
if you if if you're not a professional army and you're fighting a professional army, you need to trust God to give you the victory. And that was the whole point. They had to trust God. But if you have a professional army, you don't need to trust God. Okay. The king, the, see, notice, notice what it says there. We want to be like the other nations, a king who will go out and fight our battles. And so, um, you see, they want, they don't want to have to trust God. And that's again also for us. You know, it's to trust God with our lives. Um, that's why we want idols, because okay? we think they'll give us security. If I had more money, then I would, I would be secure. If I had this relationship, then I'd be secure. If I had this career, if I had this health, if I had this, whatever it is, none of those things are, are bad in and of themselves. But if that's where our confidence is, so that we're saying, so I don't have to trust God, that's functionally what we're saying, um, then I don't, you know, my life's all okay. I don't really need to... That's why the Lord says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle okay, and for a rich person because... Um, my family, you know, said things like Christianity is a crutch. Okay, it's just, and it is. Okay. <laughs> I don't. It is. You realize you're broken. Remember the Beatitudes: Blessed are the poor in spirit. The one who realizes I'm spiritually bankrupt. I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. I need God's grace. So, uh, again, the principle for us is. It's hard work to trust God. It's a fight, isn't it? It's a fight of faith every single day. Some days you think, oh, I, oh, this is not too bad. You feel like full of faith. You feel like Elijah on Mount Carmel. But like Elijah, the next day you're running away from Jezebel. Uh, you, you, so it, it's, it's not even like, okay, I'm on a roll here. <laughs> every day is another fight to trust God. Okay, so they don't want to trust God. Most times it's not even the next day. Like yeah. I wake up from my prayer and then I'm already, already thinking, okay, this is what I need to do. You know? I'm trying to find a solution that for my own. Definitely. And I've just handed it over. Yes. You know? mm. uh, it's like when you start, you suddenly think you've got the equation. Yeah. You've got, you've got the, the, the formula. The formula. Yeah. And God says, oh. <laughs> And then he sends a test to you, you're like, oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. And then all of a sudden you're like on your knees again. Mm -hmm. I think like the moment you think you got the formula, he, he tests you on the spot mm -hmm. to humble you again. If you think you stand, then you, then you mm -hmm. fall. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but it's also so that they don't, they could not consider that they ever uh, were victorious on their own. Yes. So to eliminate pride. Pride. That you always have to seek the Lord, yeah. And the other thing is, this is also interesting, this is another thing, is that when you have a professional army, um, you know, no nation in the world with a huge professional army just sits back and just says, oh, we're just going to keep to ourselves. Mm -hmm. You now think, well, we have a professional army, what are we going to do with it? Well, we could actually... Conquer. Yeah, we could start to build an empire. And Israel was never to do that. God gave them this land... And, and we've spoken about that. That was an act of judgment. And then they were not to have a professional army. If they were attacked, God, they must trust God. Um, but if you have a professional army, there's temptation to start to, to, to want to use it in the wrong way. Okay, so now <clears throat> the Lord says, okay, give them what they want. And um, uh, they, we're told in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And his description is verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And what we find again is that um, two bad people in, in Samuel, Absalom and Saul, are described purely by their looks. Epsilon was David's son. son. David's son. He's only trying to kill him to take yeah. him out. Yeah. So, when the Bible, all the Bible has good to say about you is that you look good, it's not a good thing. Okay. David also looked good. He was, he, we're told, he was ruddy and handsome. But David had character, didn't he? David had integrity and bravery and 
love for God. Okay, so that what is again, they're choosing through their eyes. External. External. They're not. Remember, we, we see that with with David later on. God judges by the heart. Okay, not by the exterior. So again, we have to watch out for that. Uh, the character of a person. So, um, of course, in marriage, that's that's critical. Not just external, but what's the character of the person? Okay. Um, okay. So we have this whole account. And um, we are, um, what's our time? Okay. So this is where it's going to get a little bit, little bit complicated. So, so try and stay with me. Uh, I'm sure if you're anything like me, you wondered what's the difference between Saul and David? Because they both do bad things. Um, very bad things. And yet, Saul is rejected by God, and David is a man after God's own heart. And then also, there seems to be this sort of weird thing where he's told to wait and wait for, for Samuel to come to do the sacrifices. And then we only read about it like six chapters later, after a whole lot of stuff has happened. What's going on here? It's confusing the chronology as well. And so, I want to hopefully try and explain all of that. And I want to show you that Saul was never a godly man. Okay. Again, it's put in very sophisticated ways by the narrator, but he was never a godly man. He was never a man of integrity. Um, it's not, he's not the same as David. David is a believer who fell. Saul was never a believer. Okay. Now, we know that um, in the ancient world, there was a process for a person to become a king. And so this, these are the steps. There was a designation. A demonstration. And then confirmation. Okay, so the designation is when the person is told that they're going to be king. But then there's an expectation that they will demonstrate through some heroic act that they are worthy to be the king, and then it will be confirmed, like a coronation. Does that make sense? Means the oil poured in there, the confirmation. Uh, yeah, no, designation. designation even, they're anointed um, often. Okay, so um, he... he uh, he goes looking for um, donkeys. Uh, his family loses their donkeys. And he ends up through that meeting Samuel. And he is anointed as king in chapter 10. Um, and Samuel says to him, Okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to find the donkeys here. Uh, verse 3, then you shall go on from there further and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying etc. Verse 4, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Okay, so now we know that Gibeath Elohim was supposed to be the land of that belonged to Israel. So the Philistines are are garrisoned in, in the promised land. They've set up a camp there. And then he says to him, And there, as soon as you come to this city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down, etc. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you'll prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Okay, so uh, think with me. Samuel is telling him, God has anointed you. He anoints him with oil. You're the king. This is what you must do. I want you to go to where the Philistine garrison is. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you and do what your hand finds to do. What do you think he's telling him to do? Fight. Okay. 
then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. This is his designation. The demonstration would have been he fights at, at Gibeath Elohim. And he defeats the Philistines. And in fact, his son will do that later on. Jonathan is the one who does it, remember, and the armor bearer. Um, look at um, chapter 13. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines as was at Geba. So Jonathan actually is the one who does it. Uh, 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 Saul does not do it. Okay, so now he, he does all these things. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Now, let me just clarify something for you. The Spirit come, of the Lord coming upon someone is not the same as conversion. Okay. Um, we saw with Balaam, Balaam was a false prophet. Okay. He prophesied truth, but he was a pagan. And so they do certain things, but it's not a sign of conversion. So don't think it's the same as regeneration in the, uh, that we, we understand. When the Holy Spirit makes you spiritually alive, it is, it is empowerment to do something. That's why it will say, and the Spirit left, and the Spirit came. It's empowerment to do something. Remember, the Spirit no, left Samson. The Holy Spirit came on in a moment, and then yes, so gave them power to fight, and then remember Samson gone. when his hair is cut, the Spirit left him. Yeah. It, he was still a believer, but the power to fight had gone from him now. Yeah. And then he prayed and called on the Spirit for one last time, and came and he pushed the pillars. And yes, and. and so not the same Holy Spirit that's with us. It's the same. When Jesus yes. came and Jesus left. Okay. No, no, it is the same. But he's he, he's doing he's he's working in a, in a in a different ways. Remember, he's always working. Okay. And we looked at um, Aholiab and Bezalel as well. That they were gifted artisans by the Holy Spirit. So, um, they notice what the people say when he starts prophesying. What has, this is in verse 11, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So he has a little thing the narrator puts in. Everyone is shocked. Okay. Just think of a friend you had at school who was not a good person. Okay. <laughs> and then you hear they've become a Christian. So you hear them saying things about God. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> whoa, I can't, is, really, is that guy, <laughs> is that person a Christian? That's, that's what's going on here. So, you see, nobody's, nobody's thinking, of course Saul would be a prophet. He was such a godly guy, you know. It's, it just makes perfect. They're like, what? Is Saul amongst the prophets now? Okay. So, you see, that's a hint that, that he was not a, a godly man. Um, okay. Uh, then, verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And we saw them, da 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 and... Uh, uh, we, we met Samuel and he says, tell me what Samuel said, verse 16. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So he prophesies, goes home. He doesn't do anything in Gibeah Elohim. When his uncle confronts him, he says, no, he helped us find the donkeys. He's just been anointed king of Israel. Nothing. Okay. Um, there's, there's, this is not a man who is... And now we tend to think he's humble because later on when they call him, uh, when he's brought before the people, so uh, in, the, in the following chapter, they, they can't find him. He's hiding, uh, verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Okay, He's hiding away. Now we say, well, he's humble, but it's never humility when God has called you to do something. Remember how angry God got with Moses? Because Moses said, I can't talk. God said, I made the mouth. Okay, you, you can. It's not humility. Okay, it's humility if you're not pushing yourself forward to say, hey, I want to be king. I'll be the king. I'll be the king. That's pride. It's humility when you say, I'm not worthy. But if God says, no, this is what I want you to do. I want you to serve me. I want you to whatever it is that he calls us to in, in life. And then say, no, I, I can't do that. I can't. That's not humility. That's pride. 
You're not trusting God. Okay? That's what we're seeing here with. So now this is another designation. So now he's, he's there's, so that was designation A. There was no demonstration A. So there's another designation now. But he does do something uh, in chapter 11. He does defeat the Ammonites. Okay, so that's a demonstration. Demonstration B. Okay, so he, he fulfills that. Um, okay. Um, then we come to the sacrifice in chapter 13. So remember all the way back a long time ago before all these other battles. He said, wait for me for seven days. But only now when Jonathan attacks the, the Philistine garrison is as demonstration A being fulfilled. Now he's supposed to wait. Look at verse 8 of chapter 13. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings. He does it himself. As he was doing it, Samuel arrives. Samuel said, what have you done? Verse 11. And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering, this is another theme with, with Saul, is he blames others. Uh, we'll see that with with uh, the Amalekites as well. Um, uh, and the Philistines are gathering. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me and uh, at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, it's not softened the face of the deity. Okay. You see, he has pagan thinking. That's pagan thinking. You 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 manipulate the deity through sacrifices and gifts that's 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 pagan religion throughout history you want more crops well then he's thinking that the philistines are going to come upon him because he hasn't sacrificed to god he hasn't softened the face of the deity he's not even thinking like obeying the lord and loving god Um, so i forced myself and offered the burnt offering and samuel said to saul you have done foolishly you have not kept the command of the lord Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Okay. A man like him. There's a, the, the idea here of the image of God from Genesis. Okay. So he hasn't got very repentant heart. He blames other people straight away. Yeah. So he doesn't take yeah. uh, responsibility. Uh, responsibility where David does. David does. He repents. He takes, he falls on his face immediately. Yeah. Well, when he's confronted. When he's confronted. Yeah. But he doesn't even try and blame anyone. He's That's like, right. He doesn't. And, and he... Because me! And he... You can see he loves the Lord. I mean, he writes these psalms. He's the sweet singer of Israel. So... Um, also, Saul seems to be a serious coward. He, he does do acts of bravery. He did, he did um, just defeat the... the um, he did win this battle here. Um, but... Um, he, he, yeah, compared to David, there's lots wrong. And when we see with Goliath, he's a coward, then he's not willing to go out. Okay, so, um, uh, but not a total coward. Remember how David remembers him as strong as lions. You know, David remembers Saul and Jonathan as mighty in battle. And so he, 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 but he was not. He was not David. He was not a man of God. Okay. Okay, chapter fifteen. He's told to kill the Amalekites. The Lord says, he comes to him and says, I remember what the Amalekites did when, when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness and the Amalekites would attack them. When they were coming out of, out of Egypt through the wilderness, the Amalekites would attack them. And God says, I remember what they did. I want you to go and I want you to kill all of them. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But he does not listen. You know the story. Um... Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And uh, so Samuel comes to him and he says in verse 14, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. You see the, the sneakiness, you know. We actually did it for the Lord. Um, and it was the people. It wasn't really me. Uh, uh, yeah, the devil made me do it. Uh, and and uh, 
Agag comes out and says, you know, surely the bitterness of war is finished. And um, saw, uh, Samuel takes a sword and hacks him to pieces, scriptures say. Samuel hacks who to Samuel. No, Samuel hacks Agag, the king. Um, the king. The king of the Amalekites. Um, yeah, if you look at verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So, um, he obeys the Lord. Samuel obeys the Lord, but Saul does not. Um, And it will be an Amalekite who actually finishes him off. He falls on his sword at the end, but he doesn't die. He's like, it hasn't gone all the way through. And the Amalekite comes and helps him. And so, ironically... The people that he should have killed end up killing him. Chapter 16, we come to David anointed king. So we'll just do this. Uh, we'll spend less time in Second Samuel because it's, it's not as, as detailed. Yes? How do we square the ending of Samuel 15 where it says, And Yahweh regretted that he made Saul king over Israel with how earlier on we saw that pretty much God just gave them Saul because they... Insistent, yeah. reluctant, actually. Um. Yeah, so remember when, when we find those passages where God regrets uh, doing something, uh, we mustn't read it as, as though um, he is not absolutely sovereign and in total control and has ordained all things that come to pass. He is... Uh, I think we did. Did we talk about this before? So there, there, it's God. The scriptures will use human emotions, even human body parts, to represent God, like the eye of the Lord or the arm of the Lord. But God is a spirit. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have an eye. But it's because we are at a, this level. Um, uh, I've heard it explained. Sort of, we live like we're sort of two dimensional. God is three dimensional. The only way that um, you know, we can sort of understand God as if he condescends to, to explain things the way we, we do. So you will have often the emotions of God explained in the way we have emotions. Okay. Um, so it's a way of saying that God was not happy with, with obviously with, with Saul. Um, but uh, I think it's Isaiah. It says the Lord repents and then in the same chapter it says i'm the lord i do not repent okay um so it's a tension that we it's a way of god of revealing to us god is not happy with with this with sam with saul um and um yeah i think we did we send an article i think we might have put one on the group okay so let's quickly finish this with with david and we can take a break uh, okay, so so David is the one who's chosen, and Samuel goes up to to um, to his family, and um, and he sees the first son, verse six, Eliab. And when he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." Okay, so Eliab was quite impressive. He was like, "Wow, okay, this must be the guy." Uh, and then the Lord says to him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then he goes through all the sons. And he says, No, look, the Lord hasn't chosen any of them. Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. So, so Jesse had sort of written off David. He was like, We're not even going to bother calling David, because there's no chance it could be David. Uh, and so they have to go and call David, verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the, the horn of oil and anointed him. So this is his designation. This is David's designation. So we're expecting now, okay, what demonstration is he going to do to show that he is kingly material? And what demonstration does he show? Goliath. 
So you can already see the difference. But let's let's take a quick break there. Um, let me just. Okay, so just take a quick break, and then um, uh, send a message when we're back. Yes. Well, yeah, I am, but I think Ricardo is as well. Uh, uh, I've muted. Oh, okay. I've muted the sound, so I can't hear if. Otherwise, it'll be distracting. <laughs> okay, I think we must eat more quickly than last time. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you live in the area? 